The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. It's wonderful to welcome uh, Bethany Ayres to the Startup to Scale Up uh, Game Plan. Bethany has a successful track record helping high-growth SaaS businesses, B2B SaaS businesses, succeed. And she has experience in GTM strategy, scaling sales organizations, partnerships, and fundraising. Currently, Bethany is the Chief Customer Officer at Peak.ai where she leads the data science, customer success, marketing, and sales teams. Peak has raised around 19 million US dollars in Series A's funding from MMC Ventures and Pretura Ventures. And their enterprise AI system helps companies like PepsiCo and Asos to drive growth, increase profitability, and improve sustainability. Bethany is also part of the Notion Capital Network. She advises their portfolio on fundraising pitches, how to scale effectively, and how to build an effective sales and marketing engine. So, uh, Bethany, welcome to this week's episode. Hi, Gary. Thanks very much for having me. I'm excited to talk about all things to deal with scaling. I'm excited to, to be listening to you. Now, your role changed in January, just in time for the pandemic, really, but your role changed in January from chief revenue officer to chief customer officer. So you're now responsible for all customer-facing teams, but also data science. So what was the inspiration behind that change of role and change of organizational structure? It was really to take out that tension in the customer lifecycle that is so common. There's the tension between sales and marketing, where marketing thinks that they're producing gold and sales thinks they're producing anything but gold. And you know that effort and that handover between those two, then you have sales have high targets to hit. They'll sell whatever if they're left unconstrained and then leaving it to customer success and our onboarding teams, which, which is where the data science sits to pick up the pieces and then try and deliver something. I mean, that's like the extreme areas of, of tension. It's not always so wide. It can be a little bit narrower, but you get this tension between functions regularly. And so what we decided to do was bring all of that in under me so that the cycle that it is, because it's not linear, because you have upsell, you have retention, you need to talk to customers again. Everybody plays a role and and the way that marketing go and find the right ICP will then fit into sales, which will then make customer ops and delivery a lot easier. And we can start to build a virtuous cycle rather than a vicious one. So that is why we were all moved in together under my leadership. And it's already working. It's just amazing to see if there is a concern about maybe an opportunity it gets raised very early. Everybody who's a stakeholder of that opportunity has an option, an ability to talk about what their concerns are. Negotiation, understanding happened much earlier in the process so that by the time we win that customer, everybody is bought in and we know what the risks are and we know what the plan is 
to deliver the highest ROI we can for that customer. Now, changing the structure and the leadership is one thing, but aligning goals that everyone is drawn towards this virtuous cycle, that's another thing. So have you had to change the way you incentivize the different teams so they're all, they're all aligned? Yes, we have, depending on the role. So everybody who sits on, the, on my leadership team, so the heads of marketing, sales, etc., are all aligned to the company net bookings target. So we all ultimately need to make sure that we sell enough and retain enough. So that's why it's the net rather than the gross bookings. We actually have two roles that I didn't mention before, which are growing out some of our verticals. And so they are, in effect, mini CEOs for our retail business and our CPG and manufacturing business. And they're the only two on the team that have a split bonus. So it's 50% their number, but still 50% the company number, because I really believe that we're a team. There's a reason why we're working together and we need to not be incentivized to only care about our patch, but about the, the best, what's best for the business, what's best for Peak. When we go down the next layer of responsibility, our SDRs are currently, we're trialing and we'll see how it goes. It's been about half a quarter right now that they also have a group target, team target rather than individual ones. So they are targeted on the number of discovery workshops is what we call it. So when it enters the pipeline that they produce as a team. And again, that's taken out quite a bit of individual conflict that we had. And people are working closer together, helping each other because they all have this one target to achieve. We haven't done that with the sales team yet. So the sales team still have individual commission schemes for themselves. The rest of the supporting functions within the organization that have bonuses are aligned to overall company performance rather than individual department performance. And has there been any resistance to these new goals, these new incentives, or did everyone come on board nicely, quickly, easily? Everyone came on board easily to it. It's Part of it is just that we all very much are team peak rather than team individual, and we hire for that. And so I think people were more open to those ideas. And then I'm a big believer in just going to the simplest commission schemes and bonus schemes possible and trusting that people will drive the right behaviors when there's fewer rules in place. I find that often you get these immensely complicated, particularly commission schemes that don't drive the right behavior because nobody actually understands them in the end. And or they figure out the way to game the system. They'll always figure out a way to game the system and it won't drive the right behaviors anyhow. So going for a less is more and a trust that people will do the right thing for me has led to better results than going for a very commanding control and complex bonus or commission structure. Now you've progressed into a commercial leadership role through a somewhat non-traditional path. You've not delivered five to 10 years of bag carrying sales success followed by five to 10 years of regional and, and global sales leadership success. So do you think your blend of analytical and commercial acumen and experience is the way forward for uh, successful B2B SaaS ventures? I probably do now. Like, There's always the 
imposter syndrome in it. So that the first time I was offered a CRO role, I was much more confused than anything else. It's like, well, the last time I had my own quota was 2002. <laughs> like, <laughs> I really understand growing a business, but I don't know what it's like to be, what is it, front-end sales on the call face. And so I was afraid that there wouldn't be I couldn't lead without the experience and there wouldn't be that whole like leading from the front. I don't expect anybody to do anything that I wouldn't do myself, um, which seems to be the very traditional way that sales leadership, like your idea of sales leadership. So I was quite concerned about moving in with a more analytical, less sales experience background, but it's worked. And so I guess it's more because it's worked, I can say that it's a good way of doing it. I know that there does seem to be a rising breed of CROs that come from more of a sales ops background. I think you're probably better placed to talk about that than I am because you see more in the market. Yeah, it's still a little bit unusual, at least in this country. I think some of the ideas that are coming from people like Mark Reberge, who uh, a lot of people seem to have read and or heard of is beginning to influence thinking here in uh, in the UK, but uh, it's it's somewhat more established as a career path in the states to get into commercial leadership roles without having years and years of uh, quota carrying success behind you. So you mentioned uh, imposter syndrome. That is something I come across a lot with senior people I speak to typically not volunteered as, as as openly as you did just now. Did you have anyone who helped you through that phase where you felt perhaps a little bit out of your depth? I don't think there's anyone who can help you. It comes down to your own confidence and inner belief. And so I think that you can use different tools along the way to grow and build in your confidence. And that might be people, it might not be, but it's about you have to develop your own confidence. I was actually talking to somebody yesterday who came to ask me about this and like what hints and what tactics can you use? And the thing with confidence is you can't fake it till you make it. You can externally and people might think that you have lots of confidence, but internally you still won't. So there's no quick steps. Either you feel hollow and empty and shameful inside or you don't. And at least in my experience, the only way to get through it is to work through it, through the pain, through the experiences, through the childhood trauma, and then come out the other side as a much more solid and confident human. And for me, that's been a combination of five years of therapy and about three years of an intense yoga practice. You really have been through uh, some deeper thinking and, and recovery there by the sound of it but uh, good to hear into yoga now i'm into uh, pilates so similar discipline the pilates keeps me uh, very grounded and hopefully reasonably supple as well so uh, bethany which business or leadership thinkers have really shaped your views on effective leadership and organizational structure well i actually you can't tell this because this isn't being video recorded, but I have a tremendous number of books in my house. And so I've read a lot and probably have a lot more to say here than most. One of my favorites is Patrick Lencioni's book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And 
it's I really like Patrick for a couple of reasons. One is instead of writing a normal business book, he always writes it as a fable. And then the best bit about the five dysfunctionists of the team is there's actually a manga version. And I just love it. And I think everybody should write business books that are manga books. So highly recommend that. Another book that's great for just a summary, in some ways, an anthology for everything to do with scaling up is Vern Harnish's book called Scaling Up. And it has just the best bit of loads of different authors, including Lesioni. And then the final one would be Tribal Leadership by Dave Logan and John King and Haley Fisher Wright. And it's a book that I read about 10 years ago, and it's just stuck with me in little bits and pieces. And it's very much based on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it's a great way of identifying where you, other people, and your organization are in terms of kind of mindfulness, awareness, and an ability to work as a team rather than individuals. And then, Gary, as like my final one, is actually Simon Sinek, in that I really hate him somehow like his personality grates on me I hate listening to his TED talks but I really agree with his ideas and I think he's an amazing and creative thinker so I'm quite torn between as a personality he grates on me but his ideas are very clear and interesting I don't necessarily recommend the full books because you can get his ideas in the first couple paragraphs but I think it's worth checking out Simon Sinek's thoughts Four great suggestions there. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek, actually. So, yeah, love that. And I'll have to reflect on your manga comments. Perhaps we, we can start publishing manga ideas on LinkedIn or even manga transcripts of the podcast. I'll have to look into that. That might, uh, that might be a nice differentiator. But moving on from manga, when we last chatted, you outlined why a backward sales plan should be fundamental for any B2B SaaS business. So tell me, how does a backward sales plan work? So it sounds really simple and quite basic, but it's such a fundamental of tying sales and marketing together that I don't know how SaaS businesses work without it. What you do is you take your bookings for the year by month. You look at your conversion rates in the different stages. I don't go for the bigger stages rather than every micro stage within your sales process. So broadly, when does it enter pipeline? When does it become a qualified lead? And when is it a contact or marketing lead? And look at those conversion rates, both in terms of how many convert to the next stage, but also the time that it takes in each of those stages. If you have enough data, you can also do that by channel. Then you can dial in how much pipeline you need in each of those stages months ahead of time. So it's a great leading indicator as to whether or not you're going to hit that month's target or actually six months, 12 months, three months target. So it means that you know how much pipeline you need to generate. And if you're not generating it, you have enough time to fix it. That makes sense. Is it pretty easy for the sales execs to make sure they're collecting and inputting the right data in a consistent way? So I'm a massive fan of Salesforce. I think you can probably use other CRM tools. I like Salesforce, one, because I've used it for 20 years and I don't want to learn anything new. So I admit that that's part of it. It's just my my own personal bias. But what I also like about it is it's very flexible in terms of your reporting and what you can report, and it tracks a lot of information. I've found when I've used other CRM tools that the reporting is so limited 
that I can't get the bits I need. So as long as you have the right reporting structure in place, you can then figure out those conversion rates, whether or not it's Salesforce. What are the key KPIs that B2B SaaS ventures should focus on? And how do these change or how should these change as they progress from the startup to the scale-up phase? I think there's not actually much difference between what you should track between the two. So you need to know how many leads are you creating, how many are converting, when does it enter the pipeline, how much you win. Fundamentally, you need to always track those. What does change over time is how granular you become in those metrics. So it'll be, does an inbound lead convert at a higher or lower rate? Does it move faster through the sales cycle or slower? What about the same with your partners, your outbound, and maybe specific campaigns? So it's just as you grow, you have more information and you can become more granular and have it be statistically relevant. My biggest warning is to not believe your numbers too much before it's statistically relevant. So if you only have 10 or 12 of something, you can use it directionally. You can see a trend, but you shouldn't believe, oh, my conversion rate is 75% because I have 10 leads and seven of those have converted when that's all that you have. But when you have a hundred or a thousand, then you can start to actually dial in those numbers and believe that there's some consistency and repeatability in it. Is there a danger that some companies can get overwhelmed with too many KPIs? How can they learn to refine those and focus on the truly the most important KPIs? Oh, it's definitely the case. Like I, I have been both subjected to it and the person who has followed too many KPIs. I'm quite analytical. I love my numbers. And you should see some of the spreadsheets I came up with when I was younger were just like immensely granular. Took me weeks to build. And the outputs were no more accurate than a really basic model that I built in about an hour. You can make things too complicated and it just doesn't matter anymore because reality doesn't reflect your numbers. It's, again, a guide. And then the other thing I find is that it becomes quite political. You can start to follow vanity metrics and you can have a sea of green that makes you feel really good, but it's hiding those one or two reds that are the ones that actually matter. So it's much more important to go for less is more. What are the ones that matter the most and track those and drop the vanity of politics? So at peak, what are your top two? What are the two metrics that you absolutely prioritize above all else? One is net revenue retention. So that is a combination of how much have we churned and how much have we upsold. And so that's a very good indicator of how happy is your are your customers and do you have good product market fit? Are you selling the right things to the right people? So that's a great indicator of everything across the entire sales and marketing and customer lifecycle. And then the other one for me is pipeline generation. So how much has actually entered the pipeline? And that way I know that I have enough later on. So one's a lagging indicator, one's a leading indicator. And those combined together give me the best understanding of the health of the customer lifecycle. Do you refine the pipeline analysis down to individual sales reps? Because some people have different ways of working their way through a funnel. So do you 
adjust the metrics for individuals or is everyone, shall we say, subjected to the same generic pipeline conversion rates, et cetera? That's a really good question, Gary. And the answer is both. So in terms of the backward sales plan, because we're selling mostly to medium and large companies, is we don't have a huge amount of volume. So I need to take all of the data that I can get to create a plan that is as accurate as possible. And then individual sales reps are in charge of each of their territories and run it like they're their own CEO. So they need to figure out, this is my target. How am I going to go about hitting it within my territory? And they have access to their own individual conversion rates. So they might not need the same amount of pipeline as the backward sales plan is indicating in order for them to achieve their targets because they might be really, really good at qualifying at the top of the pipeline. Conversely, somebody else might be really rubbish at that and needs a lot more pipe in order to hit their targets. And when you aggregate that, it generally adds up to where the backward sales plan is at. Now, tell me about your advisory roles, or more specifically, the companies that you have been advising. What are the mistakes that you see B2B SaaS leaders making time and time again? So one of the first ones is blaming sales for not hitting the number and (laughs) firing the sales leader and hiring another one. Never. (laughs) That never happens, surely. (laughs) It happens a lot. And then when you're on like, sales leader number three or number four, and you're still not hitting the number, people finally start to think about, well, maybe it's something else that's not working. Like maybe it's the marketing proposition. Maybe the product isn't product market fit yet. Like there are so many other issues that will make that sales fails beyond having the wrong sales leader in place. And I come in and help that one quite often. I bet you do. Do you actually uh, stop them from making the firing decision or do you have some other way of intervening in the process? I'm usually there when they've just fired somebody or thinking everything is broken. What do we need? What should the next new hire look like? Or it's where a current sales leader, they feel can't make it to the next step. And so I've been brought in, but that is like that can't make it to a next step, but really we think not good enough, we're going to fire kind of conversation. And so that, again, will be diagnosing the issue. And sometimes it is that you need a new sales leader, but sometimes it's also that your marketing's really not working or your product is on its knees and you need to look at those more closely. Actually, that reminds me of one other thing, which is another mistake that I see quite often is people hire a sales leader for five years in the future and they're thinking, well, this is an amazing person and they're going to help me grow for the next five years. And that's almost never the case. Sales leaders in particular are specialists for their one area. And if you want to decrease your risk, hire for somebody who knows how to do the stage that you're in and be okay with the fact that you'll probably grow out of them if they've done the job well and hire that next specialist. And even sometimes entering into that relationship the sales leader knows where their specialization is. So you can part ways quite amicably when they've taken you to that next step. So if you're at a million and you need to get to 10 million, hire somebody who does a million to 10. Don't hire somebody from IBM who's never worked in a startup, but is amazing at IBM to grow you from one to 10. Do you also sometimes come across this tendency to promote the best performing salesperson 
and assume that because they were the best individual contributor that they would automatically be the best sales leader, which quite often in reality is not the case. I haven't come across it as often as I used to. I think that there's starting to become a more of an understanding that what makes a good sales manager is not necessarily what makes a good salesperson. And also, I think a lot of salespeople like being individual contributors. And as sales becomes more of a profession and there's less shame in it, more salespeople want to just stay as salesmen and women. I know you have some strong views on diversity in tech. So how is Peak addressing that with your approach to hiring talent and building leadership teams? So one of the things that Peak is doing is we actually have an internal target on achieving more diversity within the organization. We opted to focus on gender first and because we can make in some ways the biggest impact and then go from there. We focus on that across the board for from reaching out to organizations that promote women in tech. We also, like within our data science team, we have a lot of women data scientists and that has really snowballed. So you, you get your first couple of women in and they promote the fact that Peak are not, is an awesome, awesome place to work for and have women in data science organizations. And so suddenly we have a very high number of applicants who are women within that department, which because it's a technical one, you might find surprising. Then we also look at flexibility in work and creating an environment where you're not just the only woman in the room, which I have experienced throughout my career. And so it's really nice to have other women in the room, which already starts to make it an easier place to both attract talent and hire it. What about the leadership positions? Is it more of a challenge at that level? It's not necessarily more of a challenge for leadership. I'm finding it very difficult to hire women enterprise sales reps. It's just, we don't even really get the applicants. I think it's quite a small pool. So we have quite a flat hierarchy. So I'm trying to kind of think of the leadership positions. And women are fairly well represented, including within the leadership team, fairly well, as in there are two of us out of nine, eight. I can't remember. And within my own leadership team, counting me, there's two. So yeah, there's not the same representation of women within that. But again, that comes a lot down to historical reasons. Like there's just, you, you, I'm always searching for women, but just not as many come across my desk. So if you are a woman in tech who are interested in working for Peak, I'd love to hear from you. <laughs> <laughs> big, big announcement there. One thing we haven't touched upon today is fundraising. Now, a lot of SaaS business leaders that I speak to seem to be stuck on a fundraising treadmill. I've personally always regarded an excessive focus on fundraising as a bit of a distraction, really, for companies and for business leaders when they should be focused on building fantastic products and delivering immense customer value. So, what are your thoughts on the fundraising treadmill? I think it definitely is a treadmill and you need to be very aware of it before you decide that that's the kind of business you want to grow and that you want funding. At New Voice Media, we we grew tremendously quickly, but we also did five funding rounds in five years. And every single round, you would think, wow, 
10 million pounds. This is so much. This will last us forever. And then you start to grow and then it's like, nope, need more. Wow. 30 million pounds. This is going to last us years. This is going to be transformational. Nope. (laughs) Going out for another fundraise. And part of that is that pressure that you're expected to double year on year. And that does cost money. Um, And then part of it is in a way like the vanity of getting caught into the fundraising. And also as soon as you get a taste for the money, your ambitions and your vision is so great that you just want to get there as quickly as possible. So it's not that it's bad, but it does become very addictive. And you should be aware of that. (laughs) At least that's been my experience. Not saying it's good or bad. It's just the type of business you'll end up running. And so it's about once you're, when you're a founder and you've gotten to that point, what is it that you want to do and what are you looking for in, in the business? And do you have uh, some, some views that the fundraising treadmill can actually bring some kind of benefit to companies in terms of focus, getting to focus uh, on doing the right things consistently yeah. year on, year out? Yes, definitely. In that, so although we did fund we did five rounds at New Voice Media. So it was, it could be viewed as a distraction and everybody complains about it being a distraction. I actually found it immensely valuable in terms of short bursts of huge productivity. So when you figured out your strategy for real, some you had in a way free consulting from the VCs asking you some pretty tough questions and looking at it in a different view. And so going through that process, the due diligence process, meant that what you came out of on the other end was a very well thought through strategy, business case, model, and often even the next stage of your product vision. So I found that very valuable. And whenever I hear founders or senior leadership teams complain about fundraising, I roll my eyes a bit because it's just about shifting your focus and the way that you view it. And it's still the same activity, but if you view it as actually this is really helpful, look at all of these free, look at all this free consulting I'm getting. It's no longer a drag, but it's actually the biggest boost for your business. Let's talk about the future for a few moments. What's your vision of the future at peak? Can you can you paint me a, a picture or even a manga story of the post-pandemic <laughs> journey that you and peak will be taking? Well, that would be definitely a great, I'm not sure if it's a manga version or one of those RSA, you know, hand drawings. Be quite <laughs> good. So we are definitely looking at helping all businesses become AI businesses in the future. We've started with mid-size and enterprise companies, but the vision is to have a AI system in the same way that you have a CRM system, an ERP system that is at the heart of your business. And it enables you to be smart, compete with Apple and Google and Amazon at any stage of a business with your own data scientists for hours. So that's what we're looking at doing is democratizing AI and helping bring everybody into this fourth industrial revolution. If you'd like something more specific than that, I can talk about like America's next. That was a question I was going to ask you because quite often UK companies or European companies, when they reach the stage peaks at, will look at the States. Sometimes they'll look at Asia, but more often they'll look at the States. And someone from the executive team will be transplanted 
to North America for six months, 12 months, maybe even two years to build things up there and, and make sure that you know, the culture of the parent organization is, is, is intact in the, um, in the new empire that you're building. So any thoughts on that and how you're going to go about uh, expanding into, into North America? Yeah, we had an entire plan and then COVID happened. So I had actually put it, so I, spoiler alert, I'm going to be the exact to move to America, or at least that was the plan. And I haven't lived in America for 20 years, so I was really excited to go back home. We uh, found places for the kids in a school. We put an offer in on a house that luckily was rejected uh, about three weeks before COVID really hit the UK. We starting to hire, we had found offices. So we're now in this position of we will still move to America and expand, but with COVID, we don't know when that's going to happen. And even just simple things like Trump has stopped all green card processing for 90 days. Will that continue afterwards? Don't know. I don't need a green card, but my husband does. So really don't know when we'll be looking at that again. Wow. So you've really been both at a personal and a corporate level exposed to what's going on with the pandemic, what's going on with American politics. Yeah. We're just going to have to wait both to see what happens with the economy and what happens with America. And in the meantime, we have more of a focus on Europe. What a roller coaster. Okay. Well, Bethany, we've covered an enormous amount of ground during this this conversation which itself due to some fun and games we've had with with zoom has uh, has taken us two or three days to actually record <laughs> from beginning to end it's been a lot of fun having you join me on the, on this episode thank you so much for sharing all those uh, incredible insights thanks for having me gary i've really enjoyed it and um the adventures along the way have been great too This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent. 